Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Cal Craigbaum. Hi. Cass and Tamar. Hello, hello. And Diego Andalus. Hey. On today's episode, we're discussing I'm Thinking of Ending Things, starring Jess Buckley and Jesse Plemons, and one of cinema's most revered auteurs, Charlie Kaufman, Disney's latest in a long line of live-action remakes, Mulan, and finally, trans filmmaker Isabel Sandoval's drama, Lingua Franca, about a Filipino immigrant trying to find her way in Brooklyn. Let's start this week with Disney's Mulan. <laughs> Need a hand, little man? Insult me again and you'll taste the tip of my blade. Lower your sword. What? I'm your commanding officer. Fighting will not be tolerated, am I clear? Yes, commander. With your voice, soldier. Yes, commander. When the Emperor of China issues a decree that one man per family must serve in the Imperial Chinese Army to defend the country from Huns, Mulan steps in to take the place of her ailing father. Carson, start us off this week with your uh, thoughts on Mulan. So look, despite thinking that plenty of the recent Disney live action remakes have just been complete and utter garbage, um, specifically looking at Dumbo and Aladdin, I actually had high hopes for a lot of Milan. This is a film that, similar to the early live action remakes like Cinderella and The Jungle Book, seemed to be taking a unique change in you know style and plot. They were making specific changes that pissed a lot of people off, like taking out the songs and changing up some of the characters. But with the PG-13 rating especially, it really seemed like this was going to be something at least interesting and different. And sadly, it just wasn't. Uh, I was pretty disappointed by this film. I think the production value is absolutely incredible from the sets to the costume designs, the makeup and hairstyling. You know, this has a full Disney theatrical budget behind it despite this weird release. So it's going to look fantastic. And it really, really does. The fight choreography I thought was pretty good. And all the action I thought was generally solid. But when you look at the story itself... It is basically just Mulan with some slight changes, but without any of the magic or fun. It takes out those elements like Mushu and the songs and tries to be this really serious war action film. But all that does is just give you a familiar story that you know where it's going, but all that life is just sucked out of it. I felt even though the film is competent compared to, you know, some of the recent Disney live action remakes, I felt like it was extremely dull at times. And just constantly I found myself just wanting to have the fun of the original. It doesn't craft enough of a unique identity to fully stand on its own. I appreciate that it's not just a carbon copy like The Lion King. They're actually trying to change it up a bit but they just don't go far enough when you mix it with some problematic elements both with you know some of the views of the main actress having a white woman behind in the director's chair that's very disappointing as well as just you know disney queer baiting which at this point as a staple of the you know their films you can expect from pretty much any of them generally just just disappointed by this one i'm not going to sort of take much uh, too much time here purely because I think me and, me and Cass usually agree on a lot of stuff and this is not really um, any different. I, I think I'm, I'm slightly a little bit more disappointed than Carson is um, and, I'll, and I'll touch upon that in a second. But I think this is a film that, look, it's, it's very, I suppose it's very difficult and in the same breath, very easy to look at these 
old fashioned and in that sorry don't disrespect to these films but the the, the sort of animated films of what Disney, what pioneered disney to it is what it's to, it is what it is today like you know with like the likes of the lion king and mulan and 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 so on and so forth and you can probably take that material and you can probably amplify it to these live action remakes on paper it probably seems the easy and best way to go without sort of shitting on the material beforehand and still you know allowing these films to be seen by a new generation of people my problem with that is that i think that the whole point of why those films worked is because they came out in an era that amplified this uniqueness and and, and this this love and lore and, and color mythology granted they're all made by white men they're all voiced by actors and actresses that that are not particularly from that you know ethnicity or nationality of what they're presenting so i think there's a long way to go and in the same breath making a live action remake of these films again on paper should be the easiest possibility to improve on them and throughout the, the last sort of decade of, of, of disney reimagining these these live action remakes they've sort of failed to sort of elevate highlight and improve on what they could have done before and i think mulan aside from the live action version of of, of the lion king which i think is, is trash purely because it is a scene by scene remake with absolutely no heart power or anything and you know anything again not to go down this fucking other path i always usually do but me and carson sort of spoke on this last time and he on on the beyonce black is king visual album and he brought something up and i don't want to speak for you carson but i think you said something really great is that that one thing the one thing that film does is it has black voices in it and i think it's one of the powerful things in the lion king that doesn't really get the uh, plaudits it deserves so here we move on to have it be a full Asian cast list. I was very, very excited, and, and, and knowing that that's a big thing for a lot of audiences, especially in East Asia and obviously in the West. I'm, I'm, I was very much looking forward to it. I said a few years ago on a, on a, on a sort of Facebook uh, forum, people were sort of talking about Disney and that it that it uh, and Mulan and that it was announced to be made, and and people were like, "Look, um, it's going to be very interesting. You know what's going to come out of it." And I'm not like afraid to say this. I said at that point, I don't think the world was ready for Mulan. I don't think American audiences were ready for it. I don't think that people, audiences, film fans were ready to accept uh, a female Asian lead who didn't speak English as a first language. And I think, again, that's the ignorance of, of audiences. But I think also it's a pessimistic eye that I had that, you know, we see this a lot where audiences like to shit on things or shit on people, or, or it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic case of if you don't understand something, you want to ultimately become afraid of it. And, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the allegory for immigration in, in, in a lot of these countries in the West, especially in the UK at the moment, what we're seeing. And I just felt that they weren't ready for it. Three years on, I was so wrong. I'm so glad that people were ready to see this and people w- were wanting to see this. Granted, it's come out in, in a way that a lot of people couldn't access, which has pissed me off. And I can't imagine what it's pissed off young, diverse uh, children out there who, who, who wanted to see a representation of you know, their skin colour, their features on screen, their culture on screen. So I, I do feel so, so sorry for those people. In the same breath, uh, this is a film that was not ever going to help that cause. Everything is here to, to, to sort of... I, I think the best way to describe it is that the, the jigsaw puzzle, all the pieces are here, but it's in the wrong fucking box. And I think... Having a female director is an excellent thing to have for Disney. To have a di- sorry, to have a full-fledged Asian cast list of, of notoriety to represent in pride of their culture, 
I think is an excellent thing. But the director is a white New Zealander, which I think is problematic to begin with, but I think it's got a lot, it's got huge ramifications for the overall film, which I'll touch upon, which I think I differ with Carson about. And I think it's castless with the likes of Jet Li and Donnie Yen and, 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 and Lee Gong and, 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 you know, the likes of these powerhouses of, of, of East Asian cinema. They've just got nothing to do. It's just stereotypes of a witch, which I think is like, if they're going to get rid of the, the this this talking dragon and get the having a witch, I mean, what line are you going to sort of cross there? Because to me, the whole point of what what worked in Mulan was it sort of, again, you can sort of miscalculate that to be problematic, but it had this colour, it had this 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 topic, it had this sort of vibrancy to it. This film, I just, it's just so dull in colour as well. There's just, it bleeds red a lot. Again, Colour of Mulan, uh, you know, I, I get that. But it's a film that's just so diluted in every area. There's not one aspect of this film where it was like, this is an embody of culture. This wasn't a, a film where it was proud or felt like it was proud to be like, this is our culture. Uh, look at the colours, look at the sort of nuance of, of, of and, and detail of how this family interacts with each other. I just felt it was all diluted. And, and again, I think that's that's a part of the director's issue where if you're not from that culture, you're making a film that's trying to parody it. And throughout, it's a film that's trying to parody East Asian cinema and, and, and Hong Kong cinema at that, especially with its action set pieces, which I think are very, very poorly made. And it just begs the question of why didn't they go out there and get an East Asian director, man or woman, I don't think it particularly matters if it was, if, however, there is one name I'll get onto a minute, which I think screams to, to make this. But um, I think a director with that passion, who understands the culture, who understands that dynamic of these stories, of this legacy, of this law, could have highlighted this film to be, I don't want to say a masterpiece or anything like that, because I don't think you can sort of make this material into something credible with the restrictions that Disney have, but could have just burst this with pride and passion. And it fails on that. But the one director that this film's voice needs is Kathy Ann. I said in my Birds of Prey review that that film has echoes of East Asian cinema in it, especially with the, with the chase on foot with Harley Quinn at the beginning, with all the streets. It just felt like a Jackie Chan film. It felt like Police Story. And Kathy Ann wonderful uh, filmmaker but has those roots this film's screaming for her voice and it's screaming to the point of oblivion because ultimately the end product is so diluted and dull it begs the question of is it a better is it a better thing that disney released this on a streaming service that it hasn't got the eyes on it because i think if it did i think it'd be in a whole host of shit but again if i was if i was a young chinese boy or girl and i was and i was anticipating watching this i'd be so disappointed it's beyond it's 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 backed by a paywall i think that's a mis a massive mistake for disney i understand they need to recoup costs but they're a conglomerate with billions and trillions of 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 backing they don't need that excess money so again this journey has not been easy for disney or for mulan but the way that they've gone about it and how they've constructed this film in every breath has just been a massive mistake. Will we see, see a sequel? I don't think the returns on this will be big enough. I think they've put way too much money in this in order for it to sort of get a response, both monetary and critically. It had 382 reviews on its opening day on Letterboxd and two days later it had 2.2 thousand. It's not enough. Not a lot of people are seeing this. Are they waiting for December for it to come out for free on Disney Plus? Is that, is that what they're waiting for? I have no idea. But overall, Mulan to me is just a, a mass wasted opportunity, a diluted entity that has no heart, has no soul, wastes everybody in its cast list. 
and 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 again, it's just a, a very disappointing venture. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much disagreement when it comes to this one from any of us because I echo your guys' thoughts almost exactly. I didn't downright hate this film. I thought it was a mixed bag. I thought it was certainly better than The Lion King and Dumbo and some of the recent ones. Like Carson, I found the the sets and the costume design and the makeup and the hairstyling to all be very visually appealing. Uh, where I differ from Carson is I thought the fight scenes were not good. I thought that they were one of the weakest parts of the film. And that's due to the very poor editing. These, these action scenes are cut to shit. They, there's no sense of cohesion or spatial awareness to how the scenes are cut together. And really the direction in general is just in shambles. There are random shots of slow-mo just thrown in randomly throughout. It was very irritating. And one thing that really bothered me is during the fight scenes, they sometimes do these kind of candid angles where the, where the shot will like turn to the side. And it's obvious they're doing it in post. They're not doing it with the camera. They're, they're just rotating the frame in whatever editing software that they're using. And it was so distracting and amateur, as was the green screen. The budget for this film clearly shows in the sets and the you know costumes and all that. But as far as the effects, I think that once again, it's, it's lacking. I just thought that there's, there's barely anything to even say about the film because it's just a generic by the numbers film. It, they take all the character out of the original, you know, with those iconic songs and with that stunning animation and they make it yet another bland, forgettable movie that no one is going to be talking about at all in a couple months. Yeah, I'd have to say that I definitely agree with most of you. I mean, there isn't really anything special about this film. The production design, I'd say, is award-worthy, and that could possibly go far in the Oscar because it just, it, like, it's incredible. But apart from that, I do have to say that it's pretty weak. I still gave it, like, a positive review, but the thing is, it is a by-the-numbers film. Like, it works for what it's trying to go for, but it really isn't trying to go for anything. It's kind of just going on the standard Disney journey. You can kind of already see um, it's kind of following this certain Disney structure that kind of like prevents it from being inventive or ambitious in any way. And that ultimately hurts the film. The editing, I did notice it, but the, I think the action sequences were decent and they were like at least enjoyable to watch. The action was pretty fun. And even though the fact that there was no musical songs in this film, I do enjoy, I would say that I enjoy that choice because I really feel like musicals could be distracting, especially like if, you're pinning them like with action because like musicals alone are fine but I feel like while it did work well for the animated film here it would have just been an even greater mess but I feel for what it was trying to go for it was decent but it was definitely nothing special and the fact that it does have I just checked and it has 8,000 views on Letterboxd compared to like the 25,000 for I'm thinking of ending things on like the 60,000 for Tenet I do feel like it's kind of a it's not going to be seen by many because of the price and also, there's just nothing really to talk about with this film. Like, it's just, it's fine for what it's going for, but nothing more. I'm just going to point out two things that have been said in this uh, so far. I think the first thing is the editing, which I missed in my original uh, conversation, because I like to babble on to, to 
to, to no one's affection. But the editing here is atrocious. There is a bit towards the final third act where it must cut six or seven times where someone just jumps. And to me, I was just sort of dumbfounded why that that decision was made. And it was just one of the things where I went to go rewatch it because I actually paid for this, believe it or not. Um, and I was just astounded again, flabbergasted, the fact that there are edits in here that are made to such a pedantic degree without zero effect. And it's just purely an edit for the sake of an edit. And to me, that's a very worrying sign that, that a director hasn't got a final cut over the material or they don't have the maturity or understanding of the craft to sort of wanting to convey this sort of action sequence, knowing if they've got sort of an idea of how to construct action in the first place. Maybe that's one of the two. Maybe it's both. I'm not too sure. Maybe we'll find out in a, in a, in a few, uh, few years to come knowing Disney. The second thing is I've, I've just, I've got to sort of angle at you, Diego, because I feel this might be a recurring segment in this uh, podcast today, but I could not disagree with the production design response from, from you as, as, as anything else I've, I've probably heard so far. I can't see how that production design is award worthy. All of it feels unorganic. It doesn't feel natural. It feels like a set. Everything feels like it's been made to surface this film. Nothing feels like it's been lived in. The whole sort of, the one thing where it felt like rather majestic is the actual emperor's um, kingdom. But even then you don't explore it as an audience member. You don't, you don't see the sort of, uh, the power it, the, that it holds and its, or its legacy you just see it as this construct of a setting that's it and then even then the film doesn't want to stay there too long anywhere so you don't really get this wonderful sense of culture again it just goes against everything I want to be sort of enamoured with this film you know a period film should indulge in its setting we don't live like that anymore we don't we can't see that setting anymore in its vibrancy Film is a, tra- is a transportation um, technique to showcase as, as history, worlds that, that haven't been lived for centuries. I, I want to indulge in that. And I, I think for the film, for two hours, th- there, there are chances here where the film can indulge in it. There's probably one scene towards the beginning with the family dynamic, how they're, they're getting you know, match made, where you see that in a cycle of, of um, affection. You see that family dynamic and you, you see what it must have been like in that, in that, that family. But... The, the setting in which those characters live to me was so unnatural and it just it just felt like it was disneyfied i don't mind if, if, if disney wants to do that but i just think that what i just don't see the point what does that achieve in the film it doesn't convey anything these people would not have lived like that you know like they, they would have lived a, a very very hard life not because they're they're you know they don't have any i don't know if they have any money or anything but they're hundreds of thousands of miles, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of miles away from uh, a mass crowd like would live in a city. So it would have been a very strange experience. But again, I get like, the colour there. It just, just feel unauthentic and sort of dull. Like I, I understand in that, in that culture, if there is like this enriching makeup, I think that's something that the film could sort of deepen down in. But it's a film that's just made up of reds, yellows. And I think that's probably it. There's just, there's just no vibrancy to the film whatsoever. And I think if you're making a, a Disney live-action remake, I think that's a, that's, that's a testament, I think, that you've gone incredibly wrong. Um, that being said, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here because it's not my culture, but I think from the cinema I've seen from East Asia, from the likes of, you know, The Curse of the Golden Flower, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you're talking about 
features there that indulge in the world, the indulge in the mythology. And those films have got dark themes, but there's cinematography there, there's production design that is phenomenal beyond belief. There's just a massive misopportunity. And I think Oscar-worthy production design and Mulan does not go in the same sentence for me personally. But the one thing I would just want to mention is that if anyone's watching this and, and, and they're thinking like, I want a bit more than this Mulan is that I would go back and I'd watch Mulan Legendary Warrior that came out in 2009. Um, I think it's probably deserving of a, a reappraisal. And I think it follows the same story. There is no, um, you know, it's not a Disney fight, let's say. It's a more brutal and, and, and gritty te- retelling of the, of the whole thing. It's rated R. So if that does it for you, it does it for you. But um, I think I'd probably go back and, and look at that rather than whatever this is. And again, like Carson says, for a PG-13, I didn't see any of that in here. I don't think it needs to be either. I don't really know why Mulan has to be PG-13. I don't know what that, that does for the film. What does that achieve? Nothing, in my opinion. But I just like I said, again, the production design here, so under, underwhelming. It's beyond belief. And I think if a film like, if, again, I don't want to go back to it all the time because we've got Mulan here. We should deal with what we've got. But I just think what Kathy Yan did with the female eye in um, and what she did with with Harley Quinn and 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 have that production design quality of a life lived in that market square. What could she have done here? It just makes my eyes roll because she could have just made something incredible. And Disney have just gone for this director who just like the zookeeper's wife, like really, like what? what how do them two correlate? How does that correlate with Mulan whatsoever? And the more I think about, it, the more I just get really pissed off with what the, like the decisions Disney make. The amount of 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 directors of this culture who could bring something. And I know Ang Lee was touted to do this for a while and chose to do Billy Lynn. Jesus Christ. But, you know, maybe the, the directors weren't, weren't there. I just don't believe that whatsoever. This is Mulan. This is a 2020 remake of a beloved Disney classic that represents not only a strong Asian female character, but a dynamic Asian cast list. You cannot tell me that not one pioneer of Asian cinema would not have wanted to have taken this job. And again, I put the, I, I generally put the blame at the feet of Disney. Yeah, I'm also going to respond to you, Diego, in your comment on you liking the choice that they removed the songs. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes the film made because it was so utterly distracting. It says something that I had Make a Man Out of You stuck in my head the entire day after watching this, despite it not even being in the film. Because I don't even understand why they took them out. Because if they wanted to have a more serious tone and they thought these songs would ruin that, sure. But they still have all the same like comedic tropes and all the same jokes of the original film. It's all still there it's just i don't understand why they decided to take out the songs because it is so utter it, it was literally just so distracting to have these scenes play out and you're fully expecting these classic songs to play that you know and love and they just don't it was such a bizarre choice um and jack your comment on the production design kind of feeling more uh forced not necessarily feeling really you know lived in i think that speaks to a larger you know detail about the film and whether you think it's a positive or negative or whatever you know that's up to you but this is based a lot of people go back to the 1998 animated classic it is based on like quote unquote real events right so like this is a historical uh, event that happened historical characters and this film even more than the 1998 uh, animated film which has a talking dragon in it so you know it's not quite you know cementing itself as a piece of reality but this just loses the plot on that greatly even more than the animated classic so i know some people i've talked to have been quite mad about that so i'm just throwing that one out there also 
can I just say this as well before Diego? I, I'm sorry to cut you up. We're just talking about the representation of song in this film, and I'm I'm indifferent. Um, I'm a person who I would rather watch the horror rocky, uh, horror the horror <laughs> the Rocky Horror Picture Show without any songs, and I think that film would be fucking horrifically amazing to watch, generally because of its horror connotations. But I can appreciate the fact that the the, the music in that makes the film. Again, with, with with the with the Disney classic of Mulan, what we spoke about just then, Carson, I can I can take it or leave it. I'm not going to lie. I think that if the songs were here, it wouldn't change much for me. I know that's telling in its own. The one thing that really, 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 really annoys me about this film is that you're not going to have one song in here. That's fair enough. Why in the actual fuck is Christina Aguilera doing a song at the end of this film? What? I, who made that decision? Like honestly, like I, 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 this is what really annoys me about this representation with Disney. Like, where, like, who was in the boardroom then thinking, right? Like, they could have got BTS to do something. And I know that's like South Korea, and and this is Chinese. Don't get me wrong, but I think this is more so. Again, it's a it's a real life story in a Chinese law. I get that, but I also think it's a massive opportunity to have Asian cinema and Asian representation brooding out of it and i think they, they had a massive missed opportunity to get uh, a, a chinese artist on the back of that song i know bts uh, there it's like i said south korean but i think for a film to really sort of push the boundaries and sort of get this east asian influence out there and again it's influenced the cinema a 90s cinema even the wachowskis it's undeniable to say that hong kong cinema did not define late 80s early 90s american cinema and now we're in a, such a position where we, we, we just can't do that now. Like Western cinema cannot make Eastern cinema. It doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work at all. I mean, you look at John Woo making American films and you look at John Woo Park making American films and Bong Joon-ho. I think, I think you can make a claim where East Asian directors come over and they try to make it the American entity. And I don't think those two worlds collide cinema-wise. I think there's a, a moment of disbelief in it, Asian cinema like hard-boiled. I mean, the guy never reloads. Um, and there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty of heightened action cinema. And, and, and the Western audiences, with like likes of Face Off, it does work. But then you have the, the Jean Van Damme thing and it, with John Woo. Uh, which is what is it hard something i don't know it's shit regardless of what it is but um it's a, it's just a strange one you know and i think i just think there's an opportunity here to have asian representation and even with a song choice they get christina aguilera i just i'm just i'm just I'm fucking dumbfounded why they would do that like i'm sure there is a a, a chinese dance group a chinese writer a chinese performer who could have made a compelling version of that in Cantonese or in Mandarin? Apologies, whichever one it is. But to have like an American song at the end, I just thought like, it's just, it, it just summed up my whole rep representation issue and just summed up my whole thoughts on this. Especially because Disney yeah. started to jump in just very quickly, but they have the natural opening after Frozen 2 and their performance at the Oscars where they had the Elsas from all the different countries come in. Just get her. There's already hype around her. There's already natural story and connection there. You know her. It's not like they couldn't find someone. It's I agree, Jack. That's very frustrating. It's because Disney's representation is all as surface level as possible. It's to give themselves a good kind of look without actually putting in the work. It's, it's why they queer bait every film as well. It's 
so they can get the points and from all these clickbait articles that are like Disney's first gay character without actually having to write a gay character. Uh, I don't have much more to add, but I did jump in because I forgot to mention a positive I have with the film and that's the score. I actually really liked the score. I thought it was appropriately sweeping and grand and the little kind of uses of instrumental versions of those musical songs from the original, I think worked in a compelling way. But I, that just made me wish that the songs from the original were in the film. Um, well, regarding the songs, I do think that's also more of a, like if you were a fan of the first film and if you maybe watched it on repeat when you were younger, because I honestly, like I didn't, that wasn't really a part of my childhood, I'd say. Like, maybe I watched it once or twice, but I don't remember singing along to the songs or kind of, like, viewing that as my favorite film when I was younger. So it also might be more of a, a predetermined expectations because you guys went in expecting those songs, and I honestly couldn't remember a single song from the animated original. So I didn't notice anything missing. So that might have been why, like, I really didn't see the change or whatever or see why it was so bad. Because I do feel like, adding music could be distracting, but it might also be one of those things where it's just like a fan expectation. And then when you kind of don't get something that was so beloved, you're kind of left disappointed. About the representation, I do have to say like that, the choice of Christina Aguilera for to sing the final song is awesome. That's just baffling to me. And I just feel like in general, this whole thing about all the Disney representation is pretty well summed up by a quote that I saw shared on Letterboxd but that is from a Hollywood Reporter interview with the director, where the director says, although it's a critically important Chinese story and it's set in Chinese culture and history, there is another culture at play here, which is the culture of Disney, which is kind of, I'd say, the best way to sum up this film. It's good for what it's going for, but ultimately what it's going for is just a Disney-fied, by-the-book story that's just trying to sneak in some representation points without fully committing to that narrative. I'm going to so just touch on a subject here that is going to be slightly, um, it's going to be difficult for, for me to sort of um, articulate my point. If, if nobody wants to comment on it, I really do appreciate that. So please, if anyone wants to remain quiet on this, do so. I have one big issue about this, this film and, and Carson did sort of, um, you know, mention it in the beginning and it's, it's, a, it's a problematic comment the actress has or has not said about what's going on in Hong Kong. Right. And um I spoke about this last week about, it's a strange comparison, but waiting for the barbarians. You have the likes of Johnny Depp, Mark Rylands, and Robert Patterson working with that director, who in 2017, three years before the film came out, had sexual misconduct allegations thrown at him. And then now he has had eight more people. I think it's, it's a strange one now to sort of look at a film and take it upon yourself to justify why you're watching that politically or not. I think it's, it, we live in a strange time. And I think... I have my own sort of issues with that. And I think a lot of people still do because you want to appreciate art, but you have to sort of realize the artist behind it. And if you're watching this film, are you technically sort of allowing that then to pass and not making a stance? So it's a big, 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 difficult decision to make. I understand why people are throwing issue at this actress. I, I get that. But the thing about it is why is nobody throwing issue at, at Disney? Why is nobody throwing issue at actually what's happening in Hong Kong? Now, the other thing that pisses me off about this film is 90% of it's shot in New Zealand and only, I think it's 5% technically. I mean, the other shit, it's green screen, don't get me wrong. But most, if not everything, is shot in New Zealand. Nothing's shot in mainland China. 
which to me is slightly disingenuous. And it's the same issue with, that I slightly have with Black Panther and with The Lion King. Here, I can somewhat understand the decision not to do it politically. However, I think it's difficult to sort of aim our sights at this actress who, whatever ever comment she makes, she may not be able to ever go back to, to that country again. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if she's an American citizen. I know she lives in America, and I know she has like 30 cats at one point, which is a really int- interesting interview. She's actually a really good uh, part of the film. I know I've not mentioned it, because I think there's a lot more worse things to say about this film than, than her performance. I think she's really, really good in that. Can't wait to see more of her, hopefully after this, on a Disney platform. We'll get to see that. But I think it's difficult to sort of aim our sights at her as an actress to come out. And I know that technically she's a mouthpiece, and she, she can... She, and you know art can speak a thousand words don't get me wrong you know and she she can say well you know i don't believe this i don't think this is right and i know that in other words she has defended the chinese government my problem is is that where the fuck have disney been during this why have they not come out and condemned it you know if she if she comes out and condemns it she like i said she may never be able to go back there she may not ever be able to go back and see her family again if they still live there you know that it, it's a it's a government over there that that is, is it's not the same as the westernized world and the west have got issues but i think every government has issues i mean i live in the uk it's an absolute fuck note over here about what's happening but my i just i just want to throw out there i think it's slightly harsh on going after her knowing that whatever comment she makes is catch 22 for her i think disney need to hold a bit of accountability here and make a comment you know, yes, it's going to get a Chinese release, but that's the only thing they're not making comment for because they want to keep everything nice and nice so they can get a box office release. But I think it goes further than that now. I, I, I just, I don't think you can, I don't think a major studio can keep quiet and allow these actors and actresses to go through the press uh, tour and have to, ha- have to answer these questions, you know? And they will be, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, they'll all be asked somehow, or maybe not through their press release. But I just think it's slightly disingenuous of audiences to sort of aim their sights at her and not look at Disney, who, who, have, who, have, who have made this production, who have kept very, very quiet on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bigger issue of like, I think this is just a thing that we see in film continually. You mentioned Waiting for the Barbarians. I remember Green Book almost had like a comedically problematic press like outing with like just horrible thing after horrible thing after horrible thing. And like, it's quite frankly, the press's job. Like right now, this is not going to make headline news more than likely. Disney, from a business perspective, right? Not morally. From a business perspective, definitely made the choice to keep as under the rug as possible. Boycott Milan still, you know, trended. It still is out there. But at the end of the day, I Disney, I can see why they didn't make a statement from a business perspective, but absolutely morally they're in the wrong here. But it is Disney. They continually are just in the morally wrong at this point. So it's sad to say, like, I'm not at all shocked that they didn't make a statement or anything. Also, because they are kind of in a rock and a hard place here. This actress made these comments, you know, they a large portion of the film, it's really hard to like, you know, recast her or something like that. It's not like all the money in the world where, well, actually, that was quite a substantial role. But, you know, a supporting role that you can kind of, you know, shoot around and replace more easily. Also, in the time of COVID, you know, having a production, we see this with the Batman is not a good idea. So I do like... I see why they did it. Do I agree with it necessarily? No. But also like when you're trying to advertise this as like, oh, Disney Plus, and you're so focused on this and it's already such a troubled like selling point being on Disney Plus for $30 in the middle of a pandemic where you can't really have a theatrical release. 
I get it from like, I can, I can see why they're doing it, but yeah, morally it's disgusting, but it's from possibly the most morally disgusting film studio out there right now. So it is what it is. From one film with a disingenuous representation to an authentic one, let's take a look at Lingua Franca. It's good to see you, Baba. It's good to see you, my darling. You need help with that? Okay. I'm sending this to my family back home. If you want, I can drive you to the post office. That's okay with your boyfriend. He's not my boyfriend. You're safe now. You're here with me. You don't know what you're talking about. Olivia, an undocumented Filipino trans woman, works as a caregiver to Olga, an elderly Russian woman, in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. When Olivia runs out of options to obtain legal states in the US, she becomes romantically involved with Alex, Olga's adult grandson, in the pursuit of a marriage-based green card. Kyle, take it away with Lingo Franca. So I knew absolutely nothing about this film going in. I had never heard of it, never heard of it mentioned at all. So, so I was completely blind and I was pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it was a very sweet, very low key drama with a lot of subtlety in the performances and the writing and especially the visual presentation that I really enjoyed. I didn't think it was a great film. I think sometimes it succumbs under the weight of its low budget. Uh, I'll get more into that later, but, but I think most of the positives of the film start with the lead, Isabel uh, Sandoval, who also wrote it, produced it, directed it, and edited the film. She is crazy. It, it's such an impressive feat that she basically made this entire film by herself on her shoulders and she her performance is fantastic it's layered there's depth there it's emotionally charged and she has a couple really standout scenes specifically in the last half of the film i liked all of her interactions with um the male lead in the film they all their chemistry together worked very well they bounced off each other very well she has a great grasp on, on shot composition. In a, in all the framing of the film is very pleasant, very appealing to the eye. Most of the editing is good, and there's some good use of montage editing in there. There's, there's a bit of awkward uh, cuts here and there, but, but it's not anything too egregious. My biggest problem with the film, and where I see the budgetary constraints really kind of shine through, is in the sound design and sound mixing, which I found to be pretty bad overall. I thought that there were a lot of awkward cuts where the sound effects sounded like they were cutting off like half a second too soon. So it kind of made some of them feel very awkward. There were some very poorly implemented stock sound effects. There's a scene where ICE agents are arresting a couple like down a road and they use a very terrible stock scream sound effect that I've heard countless times before and it just immediately ripped me out of the scene. It's not too bad of a problem overall, but it's definitely something that I noticed and definitely something that could have been improved with a larger budget. But overall, 
the movie is good. It's an important film. You never, you, you very rarely see representation like this on screen where not only, not only is it a, is a trans woman played by a trans actress, but a, a trans woman of color. So there, there's multiple layers to the representation here that's very refreshing. So it is an important movie. It is a movie well worth seeking out. It's on Netflix, so you can, you have access to it. Uh, and I, I would definitely, definitely recommend it. Yeah, from one of the most morally like, corrupted studios and uh, distributors to one of the morally best with the Ray Now, who continue to just have an incredible year releasing these films of great diversity on Netflix. Um, I agree with Kyle. It's not quite a masterpiece, I would say, but this is a really, like, I really enjoyed this film. Um, of course, the skills of Isabel Sandoval, whether you're talking about as a writer, as an actress, as a director, they're all super, super clear within the film. Um, this has a real genuine honesty to it. In the same sense of Moonlight, and we talked about this on the Pride special, and we've talked about it throughout, and how that film is a really special viewing of a cross-sections of identity. This film is not just a film about the trans experience, it's the film about a, a lower class perspective. It's a film about the immigrant experience and how all these three like sides of this character makes up their experience and who they are. Um, and it's a really, really special film because of that. I like the fact that this film is not afraid to get political in a sense very like similar to The Five Bloods, I would say, from this year. This is a film that makes its intentions, especially like in American politics, very, very clear. It's very open about who it's blaming for the issues, what can be done to fix them. I think that's really refreshing. A lot of films hold back from getting overly political, but it is clear that this film knows what it wants to say and is saying it in a sense that's elegant and effective. The film also captures a really genuine perspective on the desperation, especially from the immigrant uh, perspective. It's the fact that this is a character who needs to marry someone to get a green card. And a lot of films would kind of subject that to, oh, she doesn't really care about her partners. Oh, she's just, you know, trying anything she can to get a green card. But there is genuine love involved. And there's genuine emotion and nuance in that conversation, which I really enjoyed. And just continually, this film provides perspectives throughout all of its characters, way past just the main actress, um, that are nuanced and layered and complex, which is so nice and refreshing to see in cinema, which all too often is so unrewarding when it comes to diversity in perspective. I do think the main issue I had with this film, yes, the budget, you know, it's felt in places, I think overall, you know, it's perfectly serviceable. It is the fact that this film just has so many perspectives within it. It is a film that is skillful with how it handles its stories, but it definitely could have used another 20, 30 minutes, in my opinion, if it truly wanted to have that many characters and that many perspectives, either give it more of a runtime or focus more at times. Um, and just condense what you're trying to say. But overall, I thought even though this isn't quite a masterpiece, it was a really, like Kyle said, important piece of cinema. And it's just a film, like I said, it's on Netflix, at least in America. And I would highly recommend everyone checks it out. Um, some really incredible work. And like I said, truly a breakout film for Isabel Sandoval um, in any aspect of your, you know, her impact on the film, whether you're talking as a director, writer, actress, she's my main takeaway from this film, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I agree with most of your points there. Yeah, I, um, I think it's very refreshing that the film is not afraid to get political, not afraid to point fingers. It's very hard hitting. It's very, it's, there's not a lot of subtlety to it, but it wasn't needed. 
subtlety was not needed here. The sledgehammer approach works in this film's favor. But I do also agree that it could have used 15, 20 more minutes because it does feel a bit bare. And I think that was the intention to kind of make this very subtle, reserved drama with all these perspectives showing the, not only the trans experience, but also the immigrants experience. But it needed 15 or 20 more minutes to just kind of make the plot as compelling as it could have been and probably should have been. But it, yeah, I agree. Isabel Sandoval is what is driving this film, both behind the camera and in front of it. She is the shining star and she, she makes the whole film work. I, I, I haven't seen the film, um, but, so, but I do want to ask this question and um, I don't want to take up too much time here because it's going to be quite a larger, a broader statement overall, but it'll just be good to get your two thoughts on that. You know, trans representation, right? The last few years we've seen, you know, the good and the bad. We've seen Benedict Cumberbatch in Zoolander too, make an absolute mockery of it. And then in the last two or three years, we're really starting to see it develop in the independent market. Lena Bloom in the Port Authority film, I really, really do like by Daniel Lezovitz. And uh, from both of your comments about uh, Lingua Franca by Isabel Sandoval, I think I would probably be on the same uh, same page. But I just wanted to get both of your thoughts on something. Is that, you know, Port Authority was at Cannes. It had a really, really good reception. Lingua Franca was at the BFI London Film Institute, got a very, very good um, of a, a good reception. Why is it, do we think, that it's difficult for this subject matter, these actresses or actor um, who is trans, why, why is it so difficult to get that representation from independent cinema that is acclaimed, it's well seen? Why is it so difficult for then a major blockbuster to sort of implement that? I mean, because we spoke about with Mulan a little bit about representation and, and we spoke about it with Disney, me and Carson, we do this every week, it seems, but it, it has to have, it has to be a, a conversation we need to have because it's just not happening to the degree I think it should be. But just to get your both thoughts on it, why are we not seeing the, the, the representation move on from, well, not move on, but evolve from the independent cinema, this underground nature to it, to get to the broader, more blockbuster-like? Because I know that Star Trek Discovery season three um, has announced that they're, they're having a non-binary and a trans character. And I think that's an, it's a great sort of, it's a great movement for, to have it in sci-fi. I think it's a great movement to have it in this, this um, blockbuster sort of namesake of Star Trek. But why do we think it's so difficult for like the Star Wars, for the MCU to integrate this? Because I just want to know both your thoughts because Port Authority, I think was a wonderful um, exploration of a, of a trans character. This sounds exactly the same. I just, I know I'm going on here, but, why is it such a problematic thing for, for the mainstream to get hold of this and just showcase a strong representation in the blockbuster? I, I really just think it's how closed-minded people are. You know, uh, just look at how long it took Hollywood to implement good gay representation. I mean, some studios like Disney still aren't doing it. So I, I really just think it's, it's people drawing it out over years and years because they refuse to evolve with the times in an appropriate manner while these these indie studios realize that showing these stories so showcasing what these like what 
these underrepresented people are are going through is is a plus and that you can you can make beautiful art out of it whereas mainstream focuses on you know making the most money possible yeah before i answer your question jack i just want to throw out the garden left behind i know i believe you also reviewed that for the site and i just want to add that to the list of really incredible trans cinema from the past year and i know more people are seeing that now thank god it's a really good film um, it's the really just strange backwards logic of Hollywood. And, it, you know, it applies to multiple fields, but it's just they need films, especially big blockbusters, need to make it sellable to where they're going to they think that people are going to come buy tickets, go see the movie in return. They're going to get the money back. It's that system. And they don't believe that trans actors have proven themselves to be sellable and be that like household name. But also at the same time, they're refusing to give them the shot to move up in like the film society or whatever you want to call it um, to where they would be that like household name and make a big impact like that. So it's the weird backward logic of, oh, they haven't proven themselves, but also at the same time, we're not going to give them the chance to really prove themselves. And until more distributors like A24 did with Moonlight, where you give them a major, you know, release, whether that's theatrical PVOD, you know however you want to do it you know this is a film that kind of casually dropped on netflix i know like we kind of heard about it uh because some of us saw it and you know we're generally in film twitter the majority of people don't know what the fuck lingua franca is you know this is not necessarily in the zeitgeist so i would definitely say like it needs to come from the distributors to give it and you know arrayed now doing an incredible job getting these stories heard on netflix and just out there but you need something bigger like a24 to really get behind these films and i think in the conversation of a24 really just going off the wall here the fact that they've not done more like bold statements of representation after moonlight is a shame they've gotten so far into the genre piece and making what film twitter wants with like oh you know uh, Robert Pattinson and all these, you know, film Twitter actors, you could say that they've kind of lost that plot and being a really diverse film uh, distribution studio. And I think that's a shame because uh, I think that's going to be those types of movies that then look at Mahershala Ali after Moonlight and how just incredible he's blown up. Now he's doing Blade, you guys mentioned last week. I mean, it really is like you need those bigger platforms for the entire, you know, base and entire representation to move on and until you get that they're just going to be stuck at this lower level which is really sad because as seen in a lot of these films we've mentioned the talent is clearly there it's just up to the studio to give them that platform i just want to mention really quickly i'm so glad you mentioned the garden left behind because um we did both review it you reviewed it on the um, festival cycle i reviewed it a little bit before then and i think i'm one of I'm not going to say I'm an exclusive group or anything like that, but I think I was on I was on that train from the from the very beginning, um, quite uh, close into its uh, release t- towards this sort of, sort of festival unit where it just blew up. Um, I've spoken to Flavio Alves, who who um, who, who, who directed that p- piece of cinema, a really nice, really nice guy, one of the probably nicer people in Hollywood, um, who's on the independent circuit, has a really amazing story to tell. He's a Brazilian. Um, I believe a refugee came in, came in the 90s. He was in the military in Brazil. I think he, he, he came out and it just, uh, he, he was in a country that, that just did not want to uh, accept that. Um, and he came over to, to, uh, to the US and, and has, has gone from strength to strength. I mean, speaking of that, that film is an absolute perfect example of a represent- representation of, of, of quite a dark story about a trans woman and its reflection in society. But 
from the moment I, I've reviewed that film and I give it a very positive score, and I think also you did as well, Carson, um, that film has just grown strength to strength. I mean, um, South by Southwest have honoured it. NBC Universal have done some stuff on it. Flavio is always busy, always busy um, talking about that film. It's having this, this new life constantly. I mean, the demand is here for it. People want to see those stories. I think, I think Hillary said it a, a few a few weeks ago about, I think it was on the Pride special, that, you know, she, she I mean, what, what is cinema? It is to see stories. And why wouldn't you want to see that story? I just think that the, the diversity now is just so here to be explored. It's like it's the fact like we, we, you, you've, if we've got like 38 films about a white James Bond, is it any issue of having a black James Bond or having a female James Bond or a black female James Bond? Does it matter? I just think that now there's just no sort of unnecessary confusion about, well, you know, we need to be purists. James Bond isn't fucking real. And it's the same issue with the Star Wars stuff. I know I say this all the time. And um, it's like a purist mentality of, you know, you know, Peter Pan. Peter Pan can't be black. He's not real. Peter Pan can be anybody. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Do you know what I mean? You shouldn't have to care at this point if Peter Pan is black. Like who, do you know what I mean? Like what does it change? I mean, it, it, again, not that sounds like, sorry, narrow-minded. I don't mean, what does it change? I mean, like, it's just good representation because it just changes the mundane into something fresh and unique. unique. And I think that's what Wendy does a really good job of, you know, blind casting. But who knows? Who knows? Last but not least, and ironically enough, let's end on I'm thinking of ending things. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. Nothing is as it seems when a woman experiencing misgivings about a new boyfriend joins on a road trip to meet his parents at their remote farm. Diego, this is one you've been looking forward to for a long time. You can start us off. Yeah, so I actually didn't even finish watching the trailer of this film when it first came out because I really wanted to go in blind because it's a Charlie Kaufman film, you know? It's actually my first film of his that he's directed that I've watched, but I've watched most of his written work and I just knew I wanted to go in blind and to make it sure it's just the best experience possible. And even though it kind of started and it was meandering around and I didn't really know where it was headed. And I honestly thought it was gonna stay in one location for the majority of the film, but then they take it out of that location and it goes to other places. I really started to see some sort of build up, And by the end, even though at first I was perplexed, I actually rewatched it and I really liked how everything kind of came together and how everything was revealed. There's some things going on that are more blatantly revealed in the book, but that they aren't really like explicitly said in the film, but they are present. And that is something that I do appreciate in a film like this. And I just, I loved rewatching it and just having to figure it out. It was kind of like a, a deep puzzle. But the thing is, there's films like that, that are just puzzles. Like let's say for Tenet, but they don't have much depth to them. I feel like this is one of those film, rare films that it is a puzzle, but it does have that thematic depth that many could criticize in other films like it. Yeah, I was very much looking forward to this film. It was my most anticipated of the year because I'm a big fan of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think Charlie Kaufman is a brilliant writer. I fucking loved this movie. I loved it. I thought that everything about it created this almost dreamlike 
experience that I have not felt in a probably ever. It, it's almost as if Charlie Kaufman made a David Lynch film and everything about it from the performances that are, that are perfectly calculated from Jesse Buckley and, and um, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette's fantastic, David Thewlis, he's fantastic as the father. It's just such a perfectly calculated film. Charlie Kaufman has such a respect for the audience and he does, it's so funny that he does not give a fuck about the general viewing audience of Netflix. I, he probably knows that a lot of people are not going to make it through this film, probably not even through the first 20 film or 20, uh, first 20 minutes. It's such a, a perfectly tuned film that goes in a bunch of unexpected directions, but manages to stay perfectly coherent as a vision. I, I don't know if this makes sense, but this is what I wrote in my letterbox review. I said, I didn't understand a lot of it, but it felt like I did at the same time. Even if I didn't get the, the themes of a particular scene, I got the feeling and I got what it was going for. And, and that feeling is what kind of carried me through. And, it's, and it was a fantastic experience. It was exhausting, but in the, in the best possible way. So at first I want to just clarify that before I get into this, unlike She Dies Tomorrow, I'm making the claim that this is a good movie. I like, I'm thinking of ending things. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's definitely not, for me, Not it's far from being a masterpiece. But I think as a showcase of the directorial effort that Charlie Kaufman could put into a film, really solid. Love the production design. The acting is incredible. Um, of course, Jesse Plemons is lovely. Jesse Buckley It's just, you know, it's incredible acting. Tony Collette is in there for a hot second. It's incredible. Where this film starts to lose me is its screenplay. Not only is it just a lot, not even like a lot of dialogue, but just a lot of like, not, I wouldn't even say meaningless dialogue, but it's just so like thick at times. And it gets so dull at points just to sit through some of this dialogue, but mostly with the actual reveal and the grander like twist and the grander scheme of things in you know, the lead up to this film and Diego, I want to make it clear. It's not just you. I've heard this from a lot of people. A lot of people were comparing this to things like mother and lighthouse and a lot of these other films that have a lot of this big, you know, like, Oh, reveal. And you can think about it and you have to see it multiple times. I don't understand that narrative for this film literally from, because there is the main storyline that we're following, but then we also see flashes to another storyline you can say. And from the first flash to that side storyline, I accurately predicted what this film was going to be. And I feel like by the end of the film, it's a movie that I don't think has a lot of like debate or you have to, you know, find the clues to figure out what this film is really trying to say. I think this is a pretty, like, I wouldn't say standard at all when it comes to structure. And I think that's a really respectable thing about the film, but I think it's a pretty easy to understand film, if that makes sense. Not to shit on anyone's parade. And if you love this film, as I say with every movie, if you love a film that I hate or you hate a film I love, you know, completely valid. But like, this is not a movie that kept my, like captivated me. It's not a movie I could, it's a movie I would watch again, but it's a movie I really don't have any desire to watch again. I think this is just a completely fine, really strong stylistic film. But when it comes to the substance, it's not that there's none, unlike She Dies Tomorrow. That's the key difference here when it comes to my opinion. Um, but it's a film that just has like, 
yeah, it's good, but it's nothing incredible. It doesn't take that next step up, at least for me. Um, so that's where I kind of was like, oh, it's a really good film. I respect the film. At the end of the day, though, is it in my top 10 of the year? Is it anywhere close to that list? Sadly, not even at this point before award season where we're going to get a ton of a huge influx of predictably good films. It's just not on that list for me. But again, if it is for you, completely valid for you. So I do also want to mention that the performances were just exquisite. Tony Collette and David Thewlis, in my opinion, they're my personal best supporting actor picks of the year. I don't think this film is going to get any Oscar love, but just in my book, that's where I would put the mask. But in regards to kind of how everything plays out, I do feel that it's like Mother or Lighthouse and that it's not explicit. Yes, I knew something was up once they kind of introduced the janitor character. And like I, there was obviously a connection there. And I could kind of see who who he might be. But to be honest, since I went in blind, I still had that little seed of doubt because I wasn't sure what route this film was going to take. I hadn't read the book beforehand either. But I'd say where it really clicked for me was where the janitor kind of gives the blue slippers uh, to Jesse Buckley. And that's kind of where it just kind of all clicked for me. I do feel that maybe if I had seen the trailer or if I had read the book and kind of knew what was coming out, I would have been like, oh, this is just a, like, not necessarily a forgettable film, but just like a much easier to understand film. But I do like being kept in the dark, even though if like it, there's clues hidden everywhere. I do feel that many people might have to rewatch it. I just did it just because I wanted to see those details. But it does, even though like you can kind of see where it's going, like as you said, Carson, by the end, you're kind of still left having to connect a couple of dots of how. Like we're going to delve into spoiler territory here, but I'd say it was pretty easy to see that everything was just going on because of the janitor and it was kind of all because of his dementia kind of all in his head but it was I kind of struggled a little bit in terms of like connecting and seeing how that is shown in the film like I got the gist of it but for the rewatch I feel like the the whole thing with the Nobel Prize speech at the end like that was a little bit off until but on the rewatch though I feel like it kind of does a little bit better even if you didn't like the the pretty much mainstream interpretation of the film, I do feel like it will gel better on rewatch for you guys. Just to quickly like clarify, I've not read the book and I didn't see a single trailer for the film, so I just want to make that clear. I guess I'll just jump in here. Um, I, again, same shit, different uh, different day for me. Carson, I'm on the exact same page, so I, I'm not going to add anything more than what you've had. I'm just probably just going to discuss um, my thoughts in a little bit more detail, but I think I'm exactly on the same thought process as you. I've seen two of the three Charlie Kaufman films, including this one. Um, I'm not the biggest fan. I haven't seen much of his written work. I haven't seen Being John Malkovich. I haven't seen Adaption. I have seen his direction work. I think that's more the, the issues I have here, especially with... Uh, you know, Annalisa, which I think is, is a really, really good film, if not a very, very dark film at times. It took me 20 minutes into this and I knew where it was going to go. There's a, there's a rule in screenwriting. If you have one story that's separate from the, from the second story, at one point or another in this, in this film's running time, they're going to converge. And I just knew straight away where it was going to go. It's the same, oh, this is a horrific example, but it's the same uh, issue with The Last Days of American Crime where you have two separate stories. You know they're going to collide. And to be honest, I thought Charlie Kaufman by the end of this would have had a lot more bottle and not had them in the same, um, uh, will not have them collide whatsoever. But it is what it is. Um, I can take that. Secondly, I spoke about this before we, we started shoot the podcast. 
I do not like it when film Twitter blows smoke up a director's ass. I don't like it at all. I don't like it when you have a unanimous decision on something. And I don't like it when nine, nine times out of 10, people are telling me that this film is this and that, because I think that to me makes me want to break out the mold. I'm mature enough to accept that and understand that I can then look at it in my own eyes and I can appreciate it, but I can also accept if I'm in the wrong or it is indeed a miraculous film or a masterpiece. I'm at that level now. I can fully accept that I'm right or wrong. I can't really see the comparison here that this is a masterpiece. I'm a bit more on the positive side than Carson, although we have the exact same thoughts on the film. I'm not going to lie, and, I, and I'm just going to sort of be that person that Kyle was talking about. I, ha- I really struggled to get through the first hour and 32 minutes of this film. Really struggled. And I'm talking about, I, I, I so easily could have turned this off because A, I wasn't interested, and B, nothing here was engaging enough. I just found myself watching two people articulate themselves in a way that wasn't interesting, talking about stuff that just wasn't interesting. With better repetition, just boring sort of character study where I was just watching these two bicker and have the inevitable. Granted, I think Kaufman with his screenplay does go against that and does elevate the material. And I think you do have to sit through that slog in order to appreciate the, 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 the film, don't get me wrong. However, it takes too long to take any interest. And then when Kaufman starts dropping things, I felt like it was so unsubtle and so obvious what was happening. And yes, like you said, Diego, there is room here for personal manipulation of the story, personal sort of digestion of what you think happens, what you may not think happens. However, I think 90 of this is set in stone with what Kaufman wants to do anyway. So I don't think it is on the level of mother. I don't think it is on the level of the stuff like high life, she dies tomorrow, stuff that, that you, you walk away from it completely in an enigmatic nature. This isn't it. Whatever's on the film is in the film. Uh, that's all I'll say on that. However, yes, Jesse Plemons is marvellous. Jess Buckley is going from strength to strength to strength. Is this her... People are sort of saying that she's outstanding in this. Yeah, she's, she's really good, but she showcased better skill in Wild Rose and in uh, Misbehaviour. So I don't know. I don't think this is Jess Buckley's film. I think it's more Jesse Plemons in the background who puts a really brooding performance here. One that's, that, that, that has a layers on a second watch will be magnificent. David Hewless and Tony Collette I have slight issue with. First of all, they are both stunning in the film, which sounds like I'm going to, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but, but trust me, just, just bear with me. The problem with that is that we, often than not, and I, again, I'm going to make another comparison in a minute, which is going to sort of be this hot take, but often than not, if you have a film that is brooding of character and you're making this film a slight slog to sort of get this character depth in, to really make the audience brood with, with, with the characters, and then you invet, inject two very dynamic, very vibrant characters. There are, there are character actors who just turn the film on its head. I think that overall is a disservice to the story you're making because ultimately my time's with them now. And when they're not there, I'm bored. That's a problem. It's a film that the script writing has a problem with. You can't just delve those two characters in and then when you take them out, expect me not to want to be ingested in their character acts. Again, that'll work for some, won't work for others. Secondly, just to go back to the conversation you said about um, and I don't know if it's going to be edited here or there. It'll have to be edited as it is. I think those two will be Academy Award rec- uh, recommended. If Viola Davis can win an Academy Award for three minutes and she is stunning in the film, in doubt, 
I don't think it's out of the question for Tony Collette to finally get that little bit of an Oscar-worthy thing, even if it's to make up for Hereditary, who knows? David Thewlis, you know, retaining that Northern accent, um, to me is absolutely bizarre, but ultimately I think it's, it's easy, it's pretty good in the film as well. But yet again, I think, I think Carson's correct about the screenplay. This isn't subtle whatsoever. I thought this was very on the nose. The portraits, the dog. There was one thing where I felt, I don't want to go into spoilers, so I'll let Diego go on for it, but I'll go in after Diego. But I think this film is very unsubtle. There's no nuance here whatsoever. Kaufman does make some sort of brave decisions, especially with his final act and how he, he, he does want to sort of make you think about what's happening. But if you just listen to the end of the film, the credits, it sort of reveals what's going on. But I think what we'll do is, I think we'll, 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 I'll let me go into spoilers then. So just, yes, this is a spoiler warning. From this moment onwards, I'm going to spoil the film. Um, we're all going to spoil the film, hopefully, not just me to have a target on my back. But the one thing about this film that had me going is that for about 40 minutes, actually not in fact, until they get to the house, I was sort of on the same path that Jess Buckley was the main character and she was going to be sort of this horror um, thriller with a, a sat- satirical edge to it it was only until when she saw the portrait and it was actually her and then it was jesse plumman's as jake and then the characters of, of of jake's mom and dad were sort of going from age to age i knew that it was pulling a hitchcock i knew that that character was not going to be the main character whatsoever purely because it's the easiest way in screenwriting is that you show it's like a magician it's the what the prestige what Christopher Nolan does in The Prestige. He showcases you one thing. Ultimately, he's working something else in the back. It's just, I, I can't remember the, the phrase of it. Someone will probably bring it up, but it's, it's misdirection, it's finest. From that moment forward, to me, I was just waiting for him to piece it, to, to, to put the dots together on screen. And again, like, like Carson said, I also don't really understand why people are applauding this to the degree that it is. It's a good film. It's a very good film. It's good for Netflix to sort of have this and, 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 and have a rewatchability for it. But in the same breath, I don't really know why anyone would want to go back into this and, and read, you know, read into it more. I think IndieWire did do that interesting sort of interview with Kaufman in self-revealing. I mean, ironically enough, he says in the, I don't really like revealing the mysteries of my film, proceeds to reveal every mystery in the film. So if you want to live with that, that's fair enough. However, I think the film successfully tells you from A to B to C within the film. I don't think you have to rewatch it. There are sort of like, I know you, Diego, you're going to touch up on it in a minute about your interpretation of the film. But I thought it was always clear that Jesse Plemons was going to be the undertaker, uh, the janitor. Christ, I don't know what I'm on about. I always thought he was going to be the janitor. I always thought that his sort of representation was as soon as that, when we, he was in his, uh, Jess, Jess Buckley's character was in his old child room and he, she read the uh, poem and he told her to read a poem that she knew, and she was reading a book in his room. I knew it was a man- manifestation of his, of, his, um, of his sort of outlook on, on life. My overall opinion of the film regarding its narrative is that Jesse Plemons' character is either on his deathbed from the, from the end of the film recounting this story, or he's going through dementia like his mother and father were. And he's just recounting it in his mind. And he's seeing, he's, manifest, he's, he's manifesting a love of his life who's on the exact same wavelength that he purports to be. So that's why she touches on Pauline Kale that he, the, he has uh, books on. She touches on poems, that I did, you know, David uh, Foster Wallace, all that stuff. It's just a manifestation of his sort of um, psyche projecting of what he wanted from life intersected with stuff that he saw when he was younger in his life. It's almost like this recounting of, uh, of his life story the Nobel Prize scene I think ultimately defines that as what it is him 
going through the, the motions on his deathbed. I don't think the moment from him being a nudist is probably real. I think he probably dies in that kind of a heart attack. Um, but again, throughout the film, sorry, throughout the end credits of the film, there is a startup of the car. If that's what, if that's like this fucking mind-bending reveal, I don't know really what is. But again, the narrative for me, man struggling with dementia, probably coming to the end of, of his life, recounting the tale and this mystery sort of French new wave blase way of doing it in a sort of horror spell. Uh, I'm left not not incredibly impressed, but I think it's a super good film. The more I do think about it, the more I do quite appreciate the film and like it. Again, original IP for Netflix. Um, but I don't think this is anything but new. I don't really think Kaufman's like a savior for cinema. He wrote a good film. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought-provoking film. But to be honest, the only reason I'm talking about this to the extent I am is because of the fury that it's got on, on film Twitter. I don't think anyone would give a rat's ass if this was in an actual cinema release. I think you'd get lost in the in the foil. I think people are just starved to watch decent cinema and they see something much like in the same vein of Tenet, or Tenet, sorry, but that, that fucking ship sailed now. I can say what I want. Um, I think that people are so starved for cinema that if someone sh- shows them a stick with shit on, you know, people think it's art. And I, I, do, I just think that's the way we're going. Again, I think I've probably done the same thing with a few other, other things, namely sort of like Bill and Ted and stuff at three. But don't get me wrong, I think this is a film that is is good, don't get me wrong, but it's not the saviour of cinema what people are sort of raving it to be. All you have to do to prove your point is look at the reaction people had to this film compared to Mother. I tweeted this. There's some people who deserve some like apologies to Mother. There is some very similar editing within this film that I saw multiple people just shit on. Well, the general consensus was just shitting on Mother for its choices that are very similar to what's in this film. And everyone's praising this movie. So that double standard as a fan of Mother definitely pissed me off. I think that, like, when you look at this film, it kind of goes back to our conversation on Peninsula, weirdly, where it's like, if you have the expectation that this is going to be some big reveal, like the lighthouse and be this really, like, big discussion, quote unquote, like, I feel like you will be disappointed, similar to if you go into Peninsula expecting Train of Busan. But if you look at it for what it is, yeah, I agree with you, Jack, that, like, you can appreciate it. And like I said, I think it is a really, like, solid movie. It's just when you go in with those expectations that it feels disappointing. And that's constantly how I think I felt disappointed by the end is I kept expecting more from it for there to be some big reveal that I didn't see coming. Like it was going to play with those expectations and just ultimately it didn't. Can I just say as well, the more that this sort of stuff comes out, and also I would like to agree, Mother needs a reappraisal. Excuse me. Not only do I think Darren Aronofsky is a wonderful filmmaker in his own right, but I think that, Mother has had this sort of underwhelming and sort of underwritten evaluation in, in the last sort of few years where it keeps on being brought up, but nobody liked it. I think I wanted to, I think you, you as well, Carson. I think I want to, again, we're just meeting in the middle all the time. We're meeting in the middle all the time. We've got the exact same opinions and everything. Um, I dare to think what uh, you think of some other things I think about, but uh, film wise, anyway. I just think that Mother is, is one of those films that, yes, this allegory to religion is so on the nose, but I still give Darren Aronofsky credit by just making a thunder fuck of a film and not giving a shit. How we got Paramount to finance that film and Scorsese got to uh, finance Silence, the whole era I need a book about, there's no way that could be ever done again. And they lost millions of dollars on those films. Here, I just, I'm not sure what the comparison is to this enigmatic nature of film. I don't see any comparison between this and The Lighthouse. What 
whatsoever. And I know, Diego, you're going to back that corner, and I hope you do. Um, Kyle, jump in <laughs> if you dare. But I just don't see the comparison between those two levels of filmmaking. This is a film that's, that doesn't say... This, this film, probably more so, is, is more less enigmatic and more thought-provoking. Whereas The Lighthouse, to me, is sort of... Isn't it quite like... I don't know. I don't, I don't really know where to go, actually, because The Lighthouse, to me, is not very thought-provoking. I don't think it has a grand sense of what to say about the world or about its characters. It's two men getting cabin fever um, in probably this sort of island and losing the plot. And again, there's sort of this underbelly of, 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 of uh, misogyny there and, and a, to- a conversation on toxic masculinity. But I think you can reach for those in mostly anything. I think you probably reach for it in here as well. Not to say it's not in there, but I just think that I just, I just don't see why people are, are applauding this and revering it to a, to the standard that it is because we've had this type of cinema again i'll go back to it i think high life is a film that does existential dread and existential meaning far better than what we've seen in the last few years claire denny is a wonderful filmmaker i think you would never really hear also does it to, to a certain degree uh, 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 wonderfully but i think high life is a film where you have a prisoner on board being exploited for, for, for of what gender is as well as what the women are as well but in the name of science are freed and then locked in the prison nevertheless how can you get a more existential driven film and in the end they have nowhere to go but go down into a, in a in a wormhole or a black hole i just think there's no way that that can be compared to to this and vice versa but the lighthouse again there's no comparison for me whatsoever when the car starts up, what did you think that meant? That he's not dead. I mean, yeah, because that's what I found kind of strange. Was like, I thought it was made pretty clear that, oh, he was dying there. But that was just... And I think in Kaufman's interview, too, like he said, oh, yeah, he's dead. But the whole thing with the car starting up was like, what? Like, I, well, I that, beg- that. that again, well, then... That, sorry, Carson, I'm just going to say, that then no. begs the, the question of what is he... Is it, is it enigmatic or is it not? If he's coming out and saying it's not, then why have it in the film? That's my, that's my issue with people who want to talk about something like this. Not any of us, I mean filmmakers. If you're going to make an enigmatic feature, leave it enigmatic. There's a reason why Kubrick doesn't talk about 2001. There's a reason why we leave that to the audience to manifest. Why he did the interview with IndieWire, to me, is an absolute slap in the face to his material to begin with. Is it or isn't it? If it is, fine. But let the film justify that. Don't come out and state it. Because for me, like I said, if I have to go on, like She Dies Tomorrow, I think I didn't read up about the film whatsoever. And we came to, I came to like a sort of a, an honest and authentic conclusion in my own thoughts after we did this discussion. I think this is how you do it. You discuss it. Granted, we have a very good place where we can do this with four people from diverse backgrounds who can actually have a conversation on the merits of filmmaking. Cinema guys or people on Netflix don't have that. They don't have that sort of out, out, so they have to go on Google and, and Reddit and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. But when you're having to search what the director says about it, to me, you've gone wrong in your screenplay. And I, I, like I said, Diego, I, for my personal opinion, I think he, he, he has a, he's suffering from dementia regardless. If he dies in the car or whatever, I don't, I don't know. Now, personally, I think he dies in the car. But then to have that thing at the end and like, wait, no, and then him to say that he is dead, to me, is that not counterintuitive and redundant? Yeah, I do have to say that, like, I was really, like, even though, like, maybe it wasn't that, like, hard to understand, or at least, like, there was kind of a mainstream interpretation of what's going on, I was really excited to kind of delve into and see, like, if we clashed a bit in terms of the details, 
But then I saw yesterday that he comes out with that interview. Why? Who in their right mind, who's trying to make a film like that? Because he's obviously trying to make a film to incite discussion like that. Who in their right mind would just come out and just say everything that goes on in the film? Like, I don't think there's a single part that he does not spell out. And I was left really disappointed by that. So I... I, I was bored by the film, so I didn't. <laughs> I turned it off before we got the car sound. Uh, was it for the same? <laughs> so this is news to me. Are we sure it was the same exact car that he was in? Because like, there's a it difference wasn't... between there's a difference from like being alive, right? And then like, could that be like the car that they're driving in in like the beginning? Like that's his mind replaying it again, or something like that, to where it's like he's not necessarily like physically alive, but his mind and soul is still like alive and going through like, you could say purgatory or whatever, where he's just reflecting on his life again. That could be the case because that's kind of why I was confused. Cause I saw that he died, I believe in a truck or at least he died of hyperthermia or whatever that was. And that was, I think a truck. And then it kind of showed the car that both the main characters came in, which wasn't the truck at all. And it showed that one starting up. So that was a little bit strange to me. That's why I kind of needed that clarification. Well, just to say that the, the car in question is actually covered in snow. So if, if it is the truck, it still may be. I'm not too sure again. But like, like I said, that is actually... <laughs> I just got to get a gas. But no, I, I agree. Like, again, it's, it's, just, it's just... To me, I find that just redundant. I just think... Oh, is, that like, is that the Charlie Kaufman post-credit scene? Is that his Marvel inspiration there? I'm not too sure. To me, again, not to sort of go on it, but if anyone else, because I know Kyle... Um, it wants to uh, put his input next. I'll just end on this. This is most definitely not the enigmatic film that Kaufman thinks it is, which is, is is weird. Which is weird because you know you look at Anna Lisa and you you look at um, you know the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman film. I don't think those films are so too difficult to understand. I don't think Kaufman makes films to be enigmatic to the point of oblivion. I'm not. I don't think he's in there. I think he wants his writing to be observed, and he wants his writing to sort of be conveyed in a way that can be understood, more accessible, mean, means more viewers. Do. So that, to me, again, would be redundant. But it's from from his comments that he's made, and like you said, Diego, maybe in that, maybe the interview, maybe he's sort of unwillingly to do that, and maybe that's edited in a way that he comes across that he wants to talk about it, and maybe he's had to have a have a conversation behind closed doors with IndieWire and said, look, um, I don't really want to talk about this, but I will do regardless i still think that this film is nowhere near as enigmatic and existential uh, or sorry not existential thought-provoking that it thinks it is walking away from here i don't really walk away with any sort of personal validation or um indifferent feelings on myself watching this it hasn't evolved my thought process on how i how i would deal with grief how i would deal with that maybe i'm George Lewis is the, is the infamous one on this podcast to talk about uh, a film being cold. And ironically enough, I think this is, um, even though it's set in the, in the winter in a horrific uh, snowstorm, I think this is probably one of the coldest films I've watched in some time. I just, I, I, I've not come away from this with any sort of thematic purpose or emotional response, which again, that may be me going into this sort of slightly attacking that from all fronts. I'm not too sure. I don't know. Um, I'll have to go to sort of psychotherapy for, to, to, to even find that out but it's interesting to sort of see that after five years Kaufman is so beloved as he is uh, with with this sort of cinematic return I know that Cal wants to speak next and I don't want to sort of go into another tangent but I just want to sort of mention that it'd be interesting to see whether after three films he thinks he's himself more as a director or a writer now because I think his writing work speaks far more from his as a, as a person but again he's, he's, he wrote a draft for Chaos Walking so you know what what do I know then 
so again, I'm just I'm sort of just left puzzled with this, but not in a way that's a consciously made, purposely crafted puzzlement. Um, this is me walking away from a film that sort of I thought was fairly easy to understand. It doesn't do anything new. It has good performances, but nevertheless, uh, a, a film that sort of feels slightly overindulgent into be this enigmatic masterpiece from its creator that really isn't in that realm whatsoever. Oh man, I have a lot I want to respond to. All right. Uh, uh, first of all, Mother absolutely deserves reappraisal because that movie is fantastic. And like you guys, like you, Jack, Luke, I, I don't think that there is a comparison to be made with, uh, with The Lighthouse at all. I do not think they are even remotely similar films. I think this is closer in tone to Mother. Like Mother, both films lack subtlety at all. But also, I kind of think subtlety is overrated. I don't think everything has to be subtle. You guys both mentioned that it's very, it's not that hard to understand. And I agree from a, from a, if you're just looking at the main structure of the film, it is pretty straightforward. I got all of that. It's just the background details. It's how dense with detail that the dialogue is in certain aspects and all, you know, the backgrounds of certain scenes, the changing of the wardrobe. It, it inspires me to want to go back and rewatch it. Unlike something like Tenet, which is purposely opaque and I don't give a shit. This one, this one, I, it makes me want to seek it out because I know that you guys didn't feel much. Uh, this film didn't make you feel much. I felt a lot. I can't properly describe what I was feeling, but it was making me feel. And I found the watch to be so fascinating. I was locked in the entire time even when I did find that there were long stretches of dialogue that were starting to drone on, I, I still felt myself invested in the characters, not just the scenes with Tony Collette and David Thewlis, but, but also the scenes with our main two, I found just as interesting, just as fascinating, just in a, in a different way. Uh, as for interpretations, I, I believe in the, the dementia, interpretation of it. I believe that he is suffering from dementia. That is the mismemory of the wardrobes and her profession and how all these details kind of shift and change where she used to live in her childhood. And yeah, I just, I just found the film to be endlessly fascinating. And I especially like how Charlie Coffin makes the climax of the film an interpretive dance. I, I just, that aspect of it really stuck with me. And I, I feel like that was a good way to kind of wrap up the, the main story, if you will, uh, or his recollection of the main story in, a, in an engaging way. I just want to mention as well, I mean, not to shit on anyone here, but um, obviously we spoke about uh, the production design in Mulan. I think this is exceptional here. If this doesn't win a production design Academy Award, I'll be absolutely disgusted. Uh, the aesthetic, the cinematographer, the aspect ratio is done in, in such a precision mind. It's almost effortless how it's conveyed. The, the gymnasium scene where the Oklahoma-inspired um, dance sequence ends is so touching and so wonderfully executed and it's slightly jarring to sort of witness in this sort of stage and, and, and see it, how it fits into the overall arc. But nevertheless, I was just stunned of how beautiful this looks. 
I, I just think that, again, it's, it's a strange one because, you know, you, you look at Kaufman and he's got this sort of trio now of existential dread. It's almost like he's trying to take Andrei Tarkovsky's crown of, you know, after Solaris and Stalker and so on and so forth. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he does next, if this is a working relationship with Netflix, who knows. But um, I just can't help but feel that this would be sort of lost on the uh, cinema screen. I think it's got a good home at Netflix. Um, that being said, as much as I would have enjoyed to see this in the cinema, I feel like I would have been so claustrophobic and uh, inescapable of sort of trying to deter myself from, from being invested. Again, I just go back to that first 45 minutes. It's so tough and, and, and accessible to sort of sit there and ponder. In a cinema, I don't think you have that. Well, I, I think you, you're, you're, you're more shaken or thrown away from the idea that you can leave because obviously you, you've paid a, a, quite a lot of money for it. On Netflix, you don't have that same cage mentality where, you know, you've paid for it, I have to watch it. You, you sit down in your own time. I think 45 minutes is too long for this film to sort of engage the average viewer. And I think another thing is that I think this is quite high art. And I think it, it does verge on sort of this pretentious, meandering self-indulgence quite a lot. And what I'm trying to say overall here is that I think its, access, it's accessibility is, is quite minute. I'd be, I'd be very, uh, again, Netflix have this very strange algorithm where if you watch the film for five seconds, you've seen it. So the numbers that come out for this are going to be huge, don't get me wrong, uh, like everything seems to be with Netflix. But I'd like to see the algorithm and the statistics to see who makes it past the hour mark because I bet 75% of people don't. So yeah, I do have to say that I'm much more in Kyle's camp on this one. Like regardless of any of the subtlety or anything like that, I do feel like, I just felt a lot during the film and I don't know. It's just like, it kind of just like washed over me. It was one of those films that, like I said, like they're transcendent. They just like wash over me. And even though like, yeah, there are things here and there that might be clues or might be actually not so subtle as you guys are saying, I don't, I just felt something special come out of this film. And I feel like what really kind of bookended it for me was that final scene that like, yeah, even though in retrospect, I kind of got where it stood regarding the whole film, but it was just the way in which, I mean, I, I'd say it was kind of like creepy, just the way in which they had the speech going on, which actually it was a speech from a beautiful mind, which I found was like super strange. Just another thing, the way that he references films, because I believe he did the same thing in Antkind, his novel, but the way that he like puts in Robert Zemeckis' name in here, and then he uses uh, the speech from a beautiful mind in kind of like a, in a juxtapositional way, like it's not the way that it was used in the original film. That was really strange, but just the strangeness of it all was what really kind of won me over. And even though, yeah, it might have not been so subtle, and yeah, it might have not been that hard to interpret, I like I still wanted to go rewatch it and kind of just look at the details. Because like Kyle was saying, the wardrobe changes. There's just little hints here and there that kind of point to something deeper. And even though it may have not kind of stimulated you guys mentally, I like I do have to admire like the respect that Kaufman has for the audience and the fact that he was able to kind of go there and not kind of present it as a, oh, because many filmmakers would have presented it as, oh, like a standard twist, like, oh, it's all in his head. Oh, what happens next, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like even though that was kind of what the film ultimate, what ultimately happened in the film, Kaufman was able to present it in a way that wasn't as explicit. Yeah, maybe it wasn't the most subtle thing ever, but I, I do remember reading the plot of the book after watching the film. And the book is much more explicit, and I'm sure you guys would have probably hated it 
because of that. Because it just says like, oh, look, it's all in his head. She dies now at the end, which I, I found kind of strange. So yeah, I do have to say that I admire how Kaufman, even though it wasn't subtle, he was able to kind of at least put some subtlety on it compared to other things. Oh, and one last thing. I totally agree with you guys with the mother reappraisal. I don't understand how it was shit on that badly, but it just keeps on getting brought up and people keep on praising it, even though they originally shitted on it, which I don't understand at all. I'm just going to add two more things. And I think I'm going to just step away from this conversation. I let anyone else finish. Just two things. The first one, I'm going to be very quick. Uh, this is too long. hundred. Uh, it's almost 140 minutes. It's way too long. It's excessively long to the point where it's actually grating. I think that's a big problem I've got with the film again with the accessibility I should have mentioned earlier. But at 100, and I think it's two, it's two hours 13, two hours 15. That's way too fucking long for self-indulgence in my my mind. If, if I'm if I'm utterly transcended with the material, I don't mind the time. Here, I could tell that it was 25 minutes in. I could tell when it was 45 minutes in, and I was hoping it was longer. And and to be honest. To, to watch this material at the pacing it is and to have really nothing to go on until 45 minutes into the film, I just it was just painfully sort of difficult to sort of attend this this viewing at times. The second thing I want to talk about, and I think it's an interesting one, is the uh, inner inter- uh, contextuality that, that, that um, Kaufman uses here, it's with Zemeckis as well. That's an interesting one for me because ultimately it's the most jarring moment in the film and it's not, nothing to do with the film. And it's then witnessed quite a few times. Obviously, it's meant to be this allegory of, of, of you know, obviously, the janitor watching it, and it's, you know, I get that why it's in the film. But I think there's probably a broader meaning of that, and I think it's that Zemeckis, Zemeckis is probably this director who makes, I don't want to say this, but makes sort of like this tosh cinema where it's just like, doesn't really add anything anymore. It's just, I mean, like, welcome to Marwan. Really? I mean, I mean, sit really? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm trying to sort of be professional about this, but if a director of that caliber is making that cinema, it's just tosh to me. It's just sort of this just slang meaning. It's just like, it's basically just like, and over to, it's not shit, but it's just like, it's bland, boring. It's unneeded. It's just tosh. Okay, it's here. Let it go. His use, his, his, the, use the usage of his name is meant to be sort of this in-joke by Kaufman in that Indy interview where he says that, you know, they just they just threw it out there. Um, it was just on the tip of everyone's tongue, and obviously they worked. They were going to work on chaos walking, and then both of them ended up walking away. Ironically enough, that's what audiences should do when the when the film comes out. But um, you know, I get I get that it's like this tongue in cheek joke. I think it goes a bit further than that, and I read it in the fact that Zemeckis makes the most un- unindulged, boring cinematic films you can imagine now like he's a director who uses his own intercontextuality like in welcome to marwin he has the audacity to use the delorean and the actual theme tune to back to the future it's just like it's just self-indulgent beyond belief and i don't know if this is because i'm a film nerd or in other words a twat what other people would like to call me but i feel like the usage of that to me was so jarring i think that it was just like why why have you i just think that was, for me again like i said i'm watching that and i'm just taken out of it and i'm thinking of more highbrow reasons why that's in i don't understand why there's a mecca thing some thing is in there the intercontextuality that he uses throughout the film is very jarring to begin with the beautiful mind thing we have to be careful if that's a direct translation of the film by ron howard or it's actually quote-unquote from robert nash I believe his name is who who actually used that speech in the Nobel Prize, because I've I've heard mixed reports. I've heard that it's 
word by word from the actual film, but it's also used by, again, Robert Nash in his actual acceptance speech, which is based on a true story. So depending on which one it is, it is actually does add a little bit of a, a fidelity to the overall um, conversation or topic. But again, it is just very interesting why you would use two of those films. Because for me, the Robert Zemeckis thing, I, I would find is actually quite a big slanderous dig, <laughs> in my opinion. But the, the beautiful mind thing at the end, again, is that just Kaufman touching on Jake's sort of look at highbrow cinema and how he's indoctrined into that sort of classical, you know, show someone a brilliant performance of a, of a, of a monologue. Is that it? Then again, what does that mean for the Zemeckis thing? Is this just sort of like a jarring response to it all from me? But again, I think that's me looking at it far too deep. But again, from what Kaufman supposedly wants to inject to his films, I wouldn't have thought he put that in for a, for a jarring effect. I thought there would be method behind the madness. But overall, the more I think about this film, is it just a, it's just a film about madness? I mean, lack of, 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 a, of a good word to use. It is, isn't it? It's about descent into dementia. It's this form of malicious madness that, that that is brought on not by yourself but by your body um but i just don't think kaufman's going for that all oh, to me again it's just a jarring experience so regarding the whole insertion of like the robert semeckis credit i would have to say that i think that might actually have just been a little nod to his past unmade film i believe it was called frank or francis where in the screenplay actually there's a sequence where they go like through five or six movies in within movies and then they kind of just like go through credits so i feel like that was just a little nod to one of his past works that wasn't made and actually same with the beautiful mind with like the whole the whole oscar like i believe there was like an oscar speech in one of his past works that wasn't made i think frank or francis as well so i think that was kind of just little nods or maybe inspirations from past projects about the a beautiful mind speech I believe it was lifted from the film because I think the credits did say like that. Oh, like we, like they asked to ask for permission for to use the speech in the film. And I believe in the IndieWire interview, I believe in the IndieWire interview, he said the same thing. But really, I feel like it was that, at least in Jake's mind, like that was like, as you were saying, that's like the pinnacle of what he could get to. And that he kind of wanted, because in the film, A Beautiful Mind, like that's kind of like the pinnacle of uh, Russell Crowe's character's success. And that's kind of like his high point. And I think in his mind, Jake just wanted to reach that high point. And so in his mind, that speech kind of gives him that happy ending that he didn't get, but that he did get in his mind. You can find more thoughts on uh, our conversations on Charlie Kaufman's adaption of I'm Thinking About Ending Things, as well as the actual book um, by Ian Reid on a a further podcast that we're going to do on, I believe, uh, closer to mid-September. So definitely... uh, definitely look out for that and have a bit more of a general discussion about the adaption itself and its uh, rights and its wrongs. To round out Clubbercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. So Carson, let's start with you this week. Well, I was going to recommend Mother, but after getting glowing uh, great reviews from all of you, I'm actually going to do Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. Alina on Twitter absolutely made my week um, this week by just rewatching the film and expressing her love for it. And it is a film I saw, I believe, nine times in theaters. And it is just an absolute joy of a movie, even better than the first one. If you want, COVID sucks, right? And like, we're all in this really stressful time. Why not take an evening go to Greece, sing some ABBA, and just have an absolutely lovely time. It is about the best thing you can do with your life at this moment. It is 
just one of my guilty pleasures and one of my favorite films ever. I just have so many fond memories of that movie. And I'm always willing to push uh, the Mamma Mia Mafia. So here we go. I'll just uh, step in here for my recommendations. It's very rare I do recommendations, just purely because everything, I do have to say this every week, but every time I, I watch something in midweek or whenever, it's usually for the website or for publications. But this week I've been uh, promising my, my fiance that we'll watch the Twilight series, uh, you know, the reappraisal because of Midnight Sun. Don't know why I know that, hate that I know that, let's continue. But I have been watching sort of the, the original Twilight and, and we just start, well, I think we're on the end of New Moon. I have a love-hate with that franchise. It, it, it seems to come up in my life every hour of the day, every day for eternity. So f- for me to find positives there is a really big, big issue. However, I've seen the first film. I've had the actual audacity to watch it, the 10th anniversary AMC in Seattle. And it changed my perception on the film. And I think watching something in the cinema really does highlight this. And I just thought, I went to go watch Breaking Dawn part one and two, which I think both are, again, abysmal fi- features. But I just have this sort of newfound approach of the cinema experience. And again, I'm, I'm sort of just going to shit on myself um, here about, you know, talking about, you know, watching stuff in the cinema and compared to Netflix. Um, and I think I, I didn't make mention of it, obviously, elevating the experience because there's nothing else there. However, I generally do really enjoy those films in the cinema. More of a, like a meta approach, like a self-meta one. But if anyone's got any sort of time this week, just go watch one of those films in the cinema relive the glory days of, of our Pats and Case Stu having a fake relationship on screen with uh, <laughs> Taylor Lawton trying to act. You know, just, just live a little, enjoy yourself. That's my recommendation this week. Um, that does not give me sort of any <laughs> validity in my overall conversation throughout this podcast whatsoever. So take my opinion as a grain of salt as you should do, but just go indulge in some early RPATs. You know, look forward to the Batman because that's the type of performance we're going to get. Brooding, existential can't wait. Anyway, Kyle, what have you got recommended this week? One of the best experiences I had uh, over quarantine is I don't usually watch TV shows. I don't watch a lot. It's just a big time consuming thing. But I binged all of Better Call Saul on Netflix and it is so fucking good and everybody needs to watch it. I know a lot of Breaking Bad fans who have not seen Better Call Saul. And if you've seen Breaking Bad and not Better Call Saul, you are doing yourself a disservice. It is the best show on television. And Diego, Fire is a good recommendation this week to finish off four excellent recommendations. Well, I actually, a couple of weeks ago, I watched a strange little short film known as The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. I don't know if you guys have heard about this one, but it was actually kind of Ari Aster's breakout short that kind of got him all that attention from studios. And I don't want to say that much about it because I'd say it actually got a reception kind of similar to Parasite about in 2011, where kind of a lot of people went in blind and it just, it has some pretty shocking stuff in it. It is very, it is very hardcore. So like I just said, like, be on the lookout for that. It does have some sexual things going on that isn't for everyone, but just, I'd say go in as blind as possible and you will be shocked. It's definitely one that you're going to remember because just some of the things that happen in the film, I take so many left turns and it, it was really a great experience. So it's on, I think it's on Vimeo and on YouTube for free for everyone to watch. So I'd say right after you finish this podcast, go watch it right now. It's only 30 minutes. So just take that chunk out of your day and trust me, it's worth the watch. That is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media this week? Diego, you do us the honours. 
You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. Kyle? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kyle Craigbaum. That's K-R-I-E-G-H-B-A-U-M. And Carson. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews on Letterboxd, just the name Carson Tamar. And you can find myself at both Letterbox and Twitter with the username at JackLukeSharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and Twitter with the at, at ClapperLTD, as well as on Letterbox. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.